0: This morning's scripture reading is from 3 John, verses 5 through 7. 3 John, verses 5 through 7. As I read, please follow along in your Bible or on the screens. Hear from God's word. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles.
1: This is God's word. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the Little Landing. God bless you kids and teachers as you go. This is the second Sunday in Missions Week here at the Landing. God put it together. We could never have orchestrated the global partners who've been able to travel and be with us. We're so thankful to have Rick and Marilyn Perhai with us here. They have been serving in Ukraine for 21 years, Kyiv, Ukraine. He's a professor. Dr. Rick Perhai is an administrator and leader of Kiev Theological Seminary. He's also been a pastor of a church, a dear friend of my wife Kathy and me. I'm thrilled that Rick is here to bring the word to us. Come back tonight. We'll hear from another global partner, the miraculous work of God that's happening in a very needy part of the world. So come back at 6 o'clock tonight for the shore. The service uh, will carry on the same flavor as as this morning, and our aim will be to hear that vision and have our vision enlarged for the cause of Christ around the world. Rick, God bless you as you bring the word. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you, brother. Brent, it is... Such a privilege to be with you here at the Landing. Marilyn and I have anticipated this time with you for for way, way longer than the time that we knew that you were going to have this missions conference. And we've been so blessed by Pastor Brent and his wife Kathy. Uh, Brent has been our pastor for a a good portion of our time on the field and... uh, He has also three times come and ministered the Word of God with me, teaching biblical counselors how to rightly handle the Word of Truth, and even gone one time when I wasn't there. And uh, so uh, he really understands uh, our heart and what we are about there. And our students remember you, Brent, and they want you to come back. They would warmly welcome it. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't often think of, of helping missionaries by sending a pastor to encourage them, but uh, that, uh, that, those trips that you took, uh, we are just so grateful for them. And we know that you did it at great cost that your plate was very full as, as you did uh, that ministry with us. And so we thank you, Pastor Brent, uh, and we appreciate you an ambassador of God's word. And this is missionary Appreciation Week at the landing, and thank you, all of you who have prayed and, and Planned and prepared for this special week in the life of the church. And thanks to all of you as well who are participating now uh, in in this special week. Uh, I want us to think together for a few moments about what appreciation looks like. Let's think about this as uh, like the anatomy. Of appreciation. Uh, and first, it is acknowledging or realizing. Those who know nothing about missions or missionaries can hardly be said to appreciate them. All right? Uh, well, this week at the landing is, is acknowledging several of their missionaries. Uh, Melissa Ivey, who's going to be speaking this evening and Andrew and Lydia Stewart and Claire uh, Pinney, as well as Marilyn and myself, and we're grateful for that acknowledgement. But appreciation is more, far more, than merely acknowledgement. Appreciation includes welcoming, inviting in. And so one's attitude towards missions And missionaries uh, is is significant when it comes to appreciation. You know, if someone's attitude is, oh, here comes those missionaries again. Oh, we've got to listen to... Do we have to listen to their stories again? You know, that that doesn't exude much appreciation, does it? Um, Welcoming is also expressed not just by attitudes, but by actions. And here at the landing, both attitudes and actions have been consistent. We've been welcomed in, we've been uh, encouraged, and we've been invited into the church and into your lives, and we're, we're grateful for that, that welcoming. Third, as we invite from the heart, um, we can gain another, uh, another expression or aspect of appreciation, and that is understanding. Okay, um, Imagine welcoming a missionary and making no effort to understand where they come from, what makes them tick, why they are called or what they are called to. If we fail to understand them, then we, do we truly appreciate them? And finally, appreciation includes being thankful for uh, someone. If we welcome and seek to understand a missionary, but we cannot say that we're thankful for them, do we truly appreciate them? Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, has given the church various gifts, and we as a body and as individual believers need to be thankful for each of those gifts. And what I, I mean, would encourage you to do as, we're, as we are walking through a passage of Scripture today on this topic is to ask yourself that question You know, of where are you in these categories with regard to missions and missionaries, acknowledging, welcoming, understanding, and being thankful for it. And where is there room perhaps for some growth, so, uh, but I'd ask, how significant is appreciation of missionaries in this fourfold sense? How significant was it in the days of the apostles? Well, it was so important, important to the apostle John, that he wrote a little epistle a little letter about it, and it was so important to the early church that they saw this letter as inspired word of God, God-breathed. Yet, most of us know little about Third John. It seems to us a short and insignificant book at the end or near the end of the New Testament, and but the, the fact is it's packed with insights for the church if, if we take the time to study it, particularly packed with insights related to how we relate to missionaries. So let's look at it together and ask God for his help. Lord our God, we do bless your name, and we thank you for your living and active word. We thank you that it is breathed out From your very mouth, O Lord our God, and help us this morning to receive this word in our hearts and to be changed by it, Lord God, as we are conformed day by day more into the image of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your precious name. All of this is for the sake of his name. This writing of this epistle is for the sake of Christ's name. In 3 John, the apostle commends a man by the name of, of Gaius. And he does so for supporting, supporting an, for the support and appreciation that Gaius has shown to the, the brothers, we see in verse 3. These were missionaries who had visited Gaius's church. And John refers to himself in verse 1 as the elder. The elder, and he, he refers to Gaius as beloved. Not just one time, but four times. Four times in this 15-verse epistle. It's remarkable. Um, and he says that he loves Gaius in the truth. Now, truth has lost its meaning in our relativistic and atheistic world. But for John, truth is central, central to the gospel, which he preached and he lived. This is how significant truth is for John and in John's epistles. He uses this word truth six times in this 15-verse epistle. And in the previous letter, in Second John, he uses the same word five times in a 13-verse epistle. And in First John, he uses the term nine times. I think John wants to Focus our attention on this this idea of truth. Um, You know, when our parents or teachers or a pastor repeat something, they don't do it because they think that that's insignificant. Quite the opposite, right? So, John loves Gaius in the truth. Well, what truth? What truth? Well, the truth of the gospel. The truth of the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This bodily, resurrected, victorious Son of God now dwells in us who believe in Him. This is the truth. That John holds to and loves and loves to proclaim. And because Christ dwells in us, we live differently now. We live Christly, lovingly. It's all because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. John loves Gaius in this truth this truth of the gospel. And John, the beloved disciple of the Lord, will have much more to say about truth, but suffice it for now to say that John's love for Gaius is Christ-centered. It is gospel-centered. In verse 2, John expresses concern for Gaius's future circumstances. And for his health, he prays that all may may go well with you, Gaius, and that you you may be in good health. Now, good health and circumstances uh, certainly allow Gaius or help Gaius to be appreciative of the brothers that are sent him, these missionaries. That's significant. But John has a higher standard still. He compares Gaius' circumstances and his health with his spiritual health. He wants Gaius' soul, and he knows Gaius' soul to be sound. In our day, we often express concern about other people's circumstances and their health. But what about their soul's? Do we have concern for for the souls of those in our neighborhood, in our family, in our co-workers? The condition of a person's heart in relationship to God is primary for John, and of course it should be for us as well. Even missionaries need their souls encouraged. Those who send them must understand that Missionaries are not themselves an everlasting fountain of spiritual vitality. <laughs> no, only God in Christ is such a fountain. We, too, missionaries, have dark nights of the soul. That is true, and I've experienced some. Marilyn and I have experienced some recently. And when it seems like the darkness simply will not lift. So don't take it for granted that, that another is prospering in the Lord or because somebody's a missionary. Oh, they're, of course, they're way up here spiritually and oh, I have nothing to offer them with or encourage them by. Pray for the health of their souls and seek it. But how can you do this unless you acknowledge these missionaries, unless you welcome them into your life, unless you understand them and, and, and take the time for them to be able to come to see that you actually care and that you're not simply going to pigeonhole that, that missionary uh, so that you can be trusted to be one more who cares for their souls, for our souls. So how does John the Apostle know about the condition of Gaius's soul? Well, John explains one of the ways he knows in verse 3, where he says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now, there's that word truth a couple more times, and we're going to get to that, but first I want to take a moment and talk about the brothers. Okay, these, um, Who were these brothers? Apparently they were sent ones, according to the later context, verses 5 through 10, they were sent ones, missionaries from John's church who had returned and informed John of the love And the welcome that Gaius, and apparently Gaius' church, had had expressed to them. And we'll see more about that a little bit later. So what made these particular brothers, these, these missionaries, what made them tick? Well, 2 John 10 says that John instructs the churches that if anyone comes to you and does not bring the teaching that Jesus has come in the flesh and died bodily and rose bodily from the grave, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting whatsoever. And yet here in 3 John, John is commending Gaius for receiving these brothers. So that implies that these these missionaries are that sort of people who understand this doctrine and love it and proclaim it. They were welcomed. John describes this welcome in, thir- in verse 3 as Gaius walking in the truth. We understand truth to mean, often, oftentimes, it, it's actually three ways, but we often will only look at the first way, at what the word truth means, and that is a, a proposition that, um, that reflects Reality or corresponds to reality. In fact, in conservative Christianity, that's often the one and exclusive way that uh, uh, the ter- term "truth" is 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 understood. And certainly, the New Testament does use the word "truth" this way. For example, in John chapter four, verse thirty-seven, Jesus himself says the statement is true statement is a proposition, generally. It's a statement, the proposition, is true. But that's not how John is using the word truth here in 3 John. Um, Gaius is not merely living a proposition that corresponds to reality. S- the second way the New Testament uses the word true or truth is to characterize a person something that is genuine. Uh, For example, Jesus claims in John chapter uh, 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not saying that he's merely a proposition that corresponds to reality. He's saying he is God of true God. He is the only genuine way to God. That's what he's saying, and he he, he, he refers to himself elsewhere as the true vine, right? He is the true bread that came out of heaven, right, from the Father, okay? But this is not, it's moving more in the direction of what John means here, in 3 John. But not, this is not exactly what John, how John is using the word. And so there's a third way. And it's the way John uses the word truth in this context. And it's talking about a, a moral action that matches reality about Jesus and our relationship with him. It is being faithful to the reality of Christ in us. That this truth that uh, we have died with Christ and we have been raised up with Christ and living a life that corresponds to that reality. That's how Gaius looks. Uh, Gaius's life looks or looked like to John as he heard of Gaius' reception of the missionaries that John had sent out Jesus is faithful in all his ways he's genuine his his life ref, reflects true god of true god and those that are his followers and in whom he dwells more and more are conformed to his image and the way they live their lives is more and more looks like that 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 walking of Christ that following of Christ that we talked about this morning in Sunday school is comes closer and closer into conformity with the image of Christ not as something again that we are trying to produce in ourselves but something that by faith we claim and lay hold of that God has already done it in us and he's prepared the good works for us by grace And we do these things knowing that we're already seated with him in the heavenlies. In 3 John 4, John says that I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is not something, this kind of walking in the truth is not something that he anticipates merely in a person like Gaius or, say, the elders of the church. He expects it in all his children, the whole body, the whole church. And that's something that is the greatest of joys to John. And he doesn't expect it just in Gaius, but in all those who are in the faith, Because for John, the greatest joy is to walk in the truth. And to walk in the truth is to walk in Jesus. And to walk in Jesus is to live in Jesus. And to live in Jesus is to love Jesus and to love what he loves. And that's what he sees Gaius doing. And that's what he wants to see all the believers doing. John's greatest concern is a person's spiritual health, the closeness of their walk with the Savior. And this does include a right view of who Jesus is, the very eternal Son of God who came bodily, died bodily, resurrected bodily, is seated at the right hand of the Father and will return in glory. That true doctrine is important to John but he's concerned with more than simply right doctrine he's concerned as well with a life that corresponds to that right doctrine that right doctrine in other words he's concerned with right faithful action that's doing the truth that's walking in the truth d a carson says, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because we do, because doing what we ought now pleases us. Notice again that idea of a transformation of the heart that has occurred that, that then it, 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 it does flow from within this desire to do what is right. So what does look, doing the truth and walking in the truth look like? Well, walking in the truth has broad, broad application for the Christian. But this is how John addresses it to Gaius uh, with regard uh, to appreciating missionaries. And uh, in this next s- slide I, and section, I am borrowing... Uh, freely from Andy Johnson's book, Missions, in the Nine Mark series. It's a very helpful series and uh, very, very practical, concise books that really hit the nail on the head with uh, issues related to healthy church. So walking in the church includes expressing concern for missions and missionaries, and we'll unpack each one of these. Second, it seeks cooperation among local churches in order to to care for and appreciate uh, missions and missionaries. Third, um, it means that it's important or critical to know the ones that we are supporting as missionaries, to know what makes them tick, to know what they believe, to know what their calling is, and so on. It it includes a support that is abundant, and as we'll see, this has to do with a lot more than giving finances. And fifth, and really as a foundation for all the other four, all these other four expressions Um, of walking in the truth are buoyed up by a motivation for the love of the glory of God. So let's unpack those one at a time, starting with walking in the truth expresses concern for missions and missionaries. So John asserts that his friend Gaius is walking in truth and that it is a faithful thing you do in your efforts for these brothers. He concludes we ought to support people like these missionaries. Scripture is clear that a desire to support and spread the gospel to those who have not heard is a normal part of the Christian life. And uh, it's a basic Christian health, effort, John says, is involved in expressing concern for missions and missionaries um, as those who put this, this Missions Appreciation Week together can attest to, right? Um, it becomes even more difficult effort when a church has someone within its ranks that oppose them in appreciating missions and missionaries, uh, like John talks about later in this epistle when he talks about um, uh, Diotrephes in verses 9 and 10. The good example of Gaius' church is wel- to welcome, support, and send out uh, John's missionaries is contrasted to this Diotrephes. Whether uh, in John's church or Gaius's or another, this man liked to put himself first and does not acknowledge John's authority. Um, And if we ignore this epistle, then in some ways we could end up being like this man who went against appreciation towards the missionaries. Notice Diatrephes not only slandered and lied about John and other leaders in the church but also refused apparently multiple times to welcome the missionaries. He was stopping others in the local church from welcoming the missionaries and even excommunicated some of them. Could you imagine like yesterday during the, the dinner or even today now Somebody were to come in, run up the aisle. I should have had Marilyn come and, and do the, you know, and like drag me off the, you know, from, or, or, or excommunicate everybody on the missions committee who was involved in this. I don't have time to get into some of the, some of the theories on why this man was doing these kinds of things. But the point John is trying to make here, he's contrasting two attitudes, two approaches to missions. One that is very pro, and, but with a right approach to it, and the other that is very antithetical to missions. And, you know, there is a time, there is a time to not support missionaries who are seeking shelter or support but this man's methods were Byzantine and John describes them as evil in verse 11 and instead John encourages the church to imitate good because they are from God that is they have been born born of God as John says in 1 John 2:29 walking in the truth is walking in Christ which is loving what Christ loves. And does not Christ love His name going forth to all the nations? It seems quite obvious that those go together. You know, in Ukraine, 20 years ago, early in our, our time there, it was a challenge for the churches to put forth the effort to start a new church in a neighboring town. That was taking a very large step of faith for them. Now, they're sending their own missionaries around the world with great effort. They have acknowledged the need and the call of Scripture. They've welcomed the call of missionaries, not just theoretically, but practically, uh, by supporting and sending their own people. And they've come to understand the challenge of missionary training and care and support even in the midst of war and they realize as John's church did that this work can't be done by one church alone it can't and that brings us to our second point here walking in the truth seeks cooperation among local churches Over the years, I've noticed that there are some churches who only want to send out their own missionaries, homegrown, and others see this as an enviable situation. And in one sense, I see some value in that, that if if, if there's never anybody coming out of a local church, and we'll talk more about this a little bit later, then then is the church really giving its best? It's all, are they really... uh, um, invested at the level that they're called to but that doesn't mean that all the missionaries need to come from or ought to come from that one church that sole church and that wasn't the case for the churches where the apostle john was overseer we can see that clearly notice that cooperation in missions and this is from johnson again between multiple local congregations is taken for granted as a good thing. These brothers or gospel workers went out from another church, likely John's, and they they were strangers to Gaius, so clearly not from his congregation. And yet John says that Gaius ought to support these people so that together John's church and Gaius's might partner together for the truth. And we appreciate the landing and the landings leadership and missions committee taking that kind of approach, a cooperative approach to missions. Mutual support of missionaries is real gospel partnership that brings honor to Christ. But just because these missionaries were strangers to Gaius does not mean that it isn't important to know which missionaries to support Which brings us to the third way to appreciate missions and missionaries. We need to know whom we ought to support. This is crucial, crucial. John is specific about the kinds of people that Gaius' church should support. It's those who have testified of Gaius' love for them. It's those who go out for the sake of the name. It's for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel. It's those who seek to make no reputation for themselves, don't don't seek to go out to to, uh, become wealthy uh, from the Gentiles. It's those who believe the truth of the gospel and that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ, the resurrected and living Son of God who became flesh and died for all of our sins. Thank God for clear, clear doctrinal statements that are then established in a person's life and conduct. Fourthly, John says that That the support should be abundant. He talks about sending them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. Send somebody on their way in the New Testament. It's a way of saying supporting missionaries to continue their work of evangelizing, church planting, and strengthening the churches. We see a number of examples of this in the Scripture. I'm going to share with you briefly four. Uh, the first one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In verses 6 and 11, Paul stayed with the Corinthians for about three months. And that's likely when he wrote the letter, by the way, to the, the Romans... And this was in the process of his missionary work, and that was abundant support for him. Housing, friendship, fellowship. 2 Corinthians 1.16, Paul also, the next slide, yeah, it's right there. It's not the next slide, yeah, it's right here. <laughs> he, uh, he's raising support for the church In Jerusalem, that was ravaged by persecution. And um, so the meeting of needs of believers in other places is an expression of sending them on their way abundantly um, in a manner worthy of God as well. Acts chapter 15, we see more examples of sending them on their way. It isn't always finance. It could be sometimes Counsel, prayer, uh, and especially more partners—more partners for the ministry. That's what happened when uh, when Paul went to Jerusalem, um, and the place where he likely received the most partnership. We see from Romans chapter fifteen. Um, Those of you that know the history or the rationale for Paul writing his epistle to the Romans, uh, there's multiple reasons why he wrote, uh, but any that exclude the idea that Paul was looking to move on to Spain and that it just was no longer feasible for the church at Antioch to be his sending church. He needed a new sending church, and Italy, Rome, was a more ideal location for that. But before he could go to such a church, he had to make sure they understood him and were willing to welcome him um and that they could be thankful for his gospel and so he writes this long epistle explaining to them the truth of justification and sanctification and glorification in Jesus Christ all three which are bound up in what it means to uh, to be to be saved as a Christian and uh He also was concerned to help this church work out the differences between people in the church, particularly Jews who had become believers and Gentiles who had joined into the church. If they were fighting with each other all the time, how could they have time and energy to focus on assisting Paul in his calling to go to the Gentiles in Spain? It's very likely that the kind of support if Paul made his way finally to Spain that the support would not just be ascending church that per- perhaps provided funding but it probably would have also included translators, guides, people who, who, who in that part of the Roman Empire would have been more familiar with the language and the geography in the area of Spain. So, sending their own with him would have been part of what Paul likely received now that is overflowing abundant support and that's support in a manner worthy of God and how could they possibly do that if they weren't thankful for this same gospel and didn't hold to these truths dear, so dear that they were willing to give up some of their own and some of their own were willing to go with him. That's perhaps the greatest abundance of support. Finances, prayers are invaluable, so important, wonderful But when a church gives of their best people to serve with their missionaries, they're giving their very own lives. Abundance is not just finances and forgetfulness. Remember, appreciation is acknowledgement, welcoming, understanding, and thankfulness for. Gaius's church received these emissaries for the gospel warmly and sent them out with abundant support worthy of God and John says that in so doing they themselves were fellow workers for the truth they became co-workers by this this kind of abundant support and so we, we thank you for being fellow workers with us in your prayers, in your finances, in your counsel in your in your Uh, sending your pastor and others to come and work with different ones of your missionaries. What a blessing to be able to be fellow workers for the truth of the gospel, for the truth of Christ in us, the hope of glory, and Christ in people from every nation, the hope of glory. And all of this work as co-workers Uh, who participate in different ways is done with one ultimate motivation. And that's our fifth point. The motivation is love for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's for the sake of Christ's name that all of these things are done. As Johnson says, finally, we see the motivation that should drive all this going and sending and supporting love for the glory and knowledge of the name and truth of Christ. This is the engine of the missionary enterprise for the sake of Christ's name. The needs of those yet unreached by the gospel are great, but John presses us to send for the fame of Christ's great name and the glory of his church. Christ died so that people from every nation, tongue, and tribe could worship around the throne of the Father and of the Lamb. Would Jesus want or not want the church to appreciate those who take Christ's good news to the nations? That would be as absurd as Jesus not wanting you to share him with your family or your neighbors. So as we bring this to a conclusion, let's think about it again by way of application as I touched on at the beginning of the sermon. The landing is already acknowledging, welcoming, understanding, and showing thankfulness for their missionaries. My question is, is there any room for improvement? Are we we there? Are we 100% or are we on our way? If we understand the concept of sanctification, we understand that all of us are on the way to conformity. And that's how we need to look at this corporately as well as individually. So you may ask yourself, uh, how can the church as a whole become more um, acknowledging Welcoming, understanding, and thankful for missions and missionaries. And we can also ask for ourselves individually how can I do this? Um, and I ask and encourage each of you to take some time to pray this week about this, this question. And perhaps it would be helpful for me to share, and I know Pastor Brent probably will be a little uncomfortable by this, but it seemed so relevant and so practical as I started reflecting back on our relationship um, of how you did these very things with us. You know, Marilyn and I came back, and Brent had been at our church already for a couple of years, but for us, it was like, who's this new guy? You know, what's he doing here? And we knew he was there, but emotionally we had not yet connected with him. So Brent, he acknowledged us. He acknowledged us as missionaries. He didn't ignore us. Second, he welcomed us as missionaries. He and Kathy invited us to their small group, and we, we enjoyed warm fellowship and food and time in the Word together. Uh, And those were precious times. And he offered me an office uh, at the church uh, when I was working on writing my dissertation. And not only that, but he would from time to time just come all the way down the hall. He was at one end, I was way down at the other end. And he'd come down to my office and just to ask me how I was doing, how I was progressing in my writing. So he was welcoming in, in these kinds of ways. But it wasn't just welcoming. He also wanted to understand me. He wanted to understand what I was writing. He interacted with me on what I was writing. He wanted to know why I was writing it. Why from the context of Scripture? Why from the context of history of the church and interpretation of the Scripture? Why from the context of how this was important for the church around the world and particularly in Ukraine? All of those things were important to him in understanding, in understanding us in our in our context, and he so appreciated what we were seeking to accomplish for the glory of the Lord, and he came four times, four times, to teach there in Ukraine, and he walked where he walked. He walked in our shoes. He he understands. Um, some of the challenges that we face there. And when I talk with him now about what's going on there in Ukraine, he's up to speed on what's going on there. Finally, fourth, Brent has often expressed and continues to express thankfulness for us. And it's, it's not because Marilyn and I are so important or so special, but because of Christ Christ. And what Christ has done in us. We are nothing. We're, we're nobody. Um, Christ is all in all. I mean, I, I still marvel at times that, you know, that I'm doing the things that I'm doing. It's like, if, if, I, if I were to go back to people in my high school and tell them, you know, oh, this is what I'm doing, or this is what I've been allowed to do. You... Yeah, that's fine to laugh because it is laughable in one sense. And it gives glory to the Lord because he takes that which is weak, that which is insignificant to confound the wise, the strong, and so on. So it's because, of, because Christ is, is most special, God incarnate. So it's all about God receiving the glory. That's why there's thankfulness. And, may all, and, and, and the, the fact that he dwells in, in, in us. And that's true for every one of you who calls on the name of the Lord. He dwells in you. He can do immeasurably more than, 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 than any of us can ask or think. Trust me when I tell you that from experience I tell you that I've seen the Lord answer in ways that just show how just abundant is His support. And that's my prayer for the landing and for all of us that, that all that we do would be for the sake of His name. Let's close in prayer. Lord our God, We magnify your name. We thank you for this little 15-verse epistle written by the Apostle John to Gaius. We thank you for his good example to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us something worth appreciating because Ultimately, it's all about appreciating you. It's all about welcoming you into our lives and in the lives of our new friends wherever we take your good news. It's all about understanding other people so that they can understand the truth of you, that you are God, a very God, and that we can be thankful for you. We thank you this day for your grace and your mercy that has brought each of us into your family. And it's in Christ's name we pray.